Amen. Imagine that you are at your family reunion campout. And it's Saturday morning and you head down to the dock and you grab your Bible and you're going to have a quiet time on the dock and it's beautiful sunrise and you start digging into God's word. It's refreshing you. And Uncle Bob comes walking down to the dock and he sees you reading your Bible and he responds something like this. Why in the world are you wasting your time with that book? You know that it's filled with errors and it can't be trusted. It's just a bunch of outdated ideas and it really isn't useful for anything. And you turn to Uncle Bob and you say, Eh? Uncle Bob, it's obvious that you're going to go to a place where you, when you die where you will not be real happy. <laughs> Is that what you tell Uncle Bob? Or maybe it's this, letter B, Uncle Bob, I have faith in the Bible and I just believe it's true. Therefore, ha. Or maybe you see you do this, you just say nothing. Give him a blank stare, you ignore him and hoping that he's going to go back up to his trailer on the top of the hill. You can avoid him. Let me put one of our theme verses for this series on the screen. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you knew, we started a series that really applies, trying to apply this verse but here's the deal. I think we look at this and we go, well, this is for those apologetic guys. This is for pastors and, and missionaries and teachers and whatever. And, but we must catch something here that this verse is written to entire churches and that God is inviting us to be used to give a reason, to give a defense for the hope that's within us. He wants us to be used for his glory, for his honor, and for the Uncle Bobs in our lives. That we wouldn't be silent. See, God is in the business of pursuing people, raising up a bride. Now, I have to point something out here. The goal is not to debate them into the kingdom. So we, we, as we approach people, it's, it's gentleness and respect. But I, I think there's times where we go, I just don't know how to do that. And, and so there's a couple of responses we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Well, let's just lie low. Let's ignore Uncle Bob. Let him go back up to his trailer. And sometimes even within our lives, we, we just go, let's just huddle up with other Christians and not engage the world because I don't know the answer. And maybe once or twice a year, yeah, we throw some outreach at church, whatever, and then we feel good about ourselves in terms of, yeah, we're impacting the world. But understand, this verse is inviting every one of us. If you know Christ, it's inviting us to be used for his kingdom and his glory. Last week, one of the points, maybe you didn't listen to it, but one of the points that I was challenging us on is this idea that we need to learn the skill of asking questions for, with people to help them understand in such a way that the Holy Spirit can be, begin to work. Questions can break down some walls. 
And here's a question, just review kind of that we talked about last week, kind of tease you if you weren't here, this question, who gets the right to decide what is morally good or morally evil? It is a significant question that you need to put in your back pocket in terms of being ready as we, as we hit all of these different issues because the issue of truth is profound. Who gets the right to decide what's good and what's right? And let me put up the next statement. What I believe, I believe that God is the one that determines what is true and right. And one of the ways that he does that is through this book. So as we're down at the dock reading, doing our devotions, and Uncle Bob comes up, how do we communicate to Uncle Bob that this book is important to us, that we believe it, and that we're ready to give a defense about this book? and the things that are written in this book that God has given us. See, do we believe it? That this is important? Let me put up a verse from 2 Timothy chapter 3 to show you the importance of it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Folks, that's coming more and more. I, I really believe that. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, this book, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This scripture, this book was breathed out by God through the authors. The Holy Spirit used men to write this book and it is one that it is a transcendent truth for our lives. Now, I began studying last Sunday night, doing some reading on some apologetic sites, and a question popped my mind. And the question was this, who is the normal person that we engage with in our community? Who are the Uncle Bobs or the next door neighbors that we engage with it? And here's kind of the, the aha for me is that as we live in this area, this I'm not convinced is a hotbed of hardcore atheists and secularists. I'm not convinced of it in northern Minnesota. Maybe more in Minneapolis, okay? Now, I do recognize that we're, we're still influenced. We have a media, that, media that's pushing back on faith. As a matter of fact, it pushes back on the word of God and says you can't trust it. And I think at times, even as we live in our community, that has a, cumul a cumulative effect on our hearts, our minds, and even our children's hearts and minds, where the, the importance of the scriptures can begin to fade. And it can chip away at our need for God and our understanding of the authority of the Bible. But my thought, who are we? Who is Grand Rapids and Coleraine, Bovee, Deer River, Hill City? Who is the Uncle Bob in our community? And here's what my conclusion is. 
The normal person in our community is one that has grown up with some kind of connection to a church. In the background, they've gone to a, a VBS or a Sunday school or a grandma took them to church or something where there is some understanding of the Bible. Now, they don't necessarily believe it and they've been influenced maybe negatively against it, but there's some type of acceptance in terms of the scriptures. Matter of fact, I, I think that's the norm when you look at your neighbors and your friends at work. So there's, a, there's something in the past that there's some familiarity with the scriptures and going to churches. But one nuance to this, I, I think we got to realize one piece to it. There are many churches out in this world who do not hold this as the authority of God from God. They would say it's filled with heirs, that it was just, it, it's a book. And, and literally, I've had people tell me that they've been talking to another pastor, and, and this one pastor said, it, it's just a book. The miracles never happened. It just, it teaches you about God in a good way. And that's churches that are teaching that. And maybe Uncle Bob has been influenced by that teaching, but here's where last week comes in. How do we learn the skill of asking questions begin to pry open their heart, to pry open their mind, where they can begin to question at least and allow the Holy Spirit and to maybe break down some barriers that God can begin to work. Now, so the question here, let me just throw you a question that kind of I'll talk through even today with questions. If you were to ask Bob a question, do you believe that George Washington was a real person and he really was the president of the United States? What would Bob say? Yeah, of course he is. Because history recorded it. Now, here's where, if you want to go down a more traditional apologetic faith with Bob, there's a way that you could respond and a question like this would actually be legitimate. Bob, Uncle Bob, do you know anything about textual criticism? Now he would look at you and go, what? Okay, let me tell you what this is. Textual criticism, the definition is here. It's the process of attempting to ascertain the original wording of a text. And this isn't just the Bible, understand. Now, Uncle Bob won't have a clue, but if you go back to George Washington, see, here's a question you can actually use to, to knock on his heart and his mind. Uncle Bob, can you show me evidence that George Washington ever existed? Would you prove it to me? And what would Uncle Bob do? Maybe he'd run up to his trailer that he, that he has up on top of the hill and he comes down and he shows you a history book. And the book, you look in there, it was dated 1978. And you tell him, I'm rejecting that book. It wasn't even close to the time of, of when George Washington lived. It's way too far apart. You can't trust that book. So how does Bob answer? not sure. See, understand there is a question that we need to even, another one to put in our pocket, 
into our a bag in terms of asking questions. And this is a fair one. And somebody a couple of weeks ago came up to me and made a statement that it was kind of like this. They were talking with a group of people and they were looking at work projects for students and they were talking about one particular um, nonprofit in the community. And somebody made the statement, oh, we can't send kids there because they are bigoted toward an issue. And nobody knew really what to say at that point. And you go, what do you say when somebody says that? Here's the legitimate question. Would you show me your evidence? It, it had to do with the Salvation Army. And you could say something like this. You know, my experience with the Salvation Army is that they really are trying to meet some of the needs in the community. Would you, but would you show me the evidence that they discriminate against people? See, what they've heard is what the media tells them. And it's a legitimate, ask them a question back. Where's your proof? Because what they're doing to us, understand, they're looking at us and going, you have no validity. The Bible, there's no valid basis for you claiming that. You catch the point. Uncle Bob, where's your evidence? For George Washington. See, textual criticism is, tr is trying to find out what is the accuracy, really the truthfulness of what was written a long time ago. And there's a basis for it where they look at everything that's written now or go back to the earliest documents. And then there's a way of that they're looking at them critically and going, did the author really communicate that? Did this person really live? Did he actually speak these things into the life at that, at that point in history. But the goal is to get accuracy in terms of really what was said. And, and you could actually start out with something like this if you, if you did a more traditional path of apologetics. Uncle Bob, do you know who Plato is? Has everybody heard of Plato here? Most, most people? He's a philosopher. And if you were in college or had a philosophy class, you probably did a little bit of studying on him. And you can say, Uncle Bob, do you know that he lived from 424 to 348 BC, before Christ? Now, colleges actually have classes about Plato, and, and he, he, we assume that he really was a person that he did teach these things. As a matter of fact, I read a little bit that he actually talked even about fathers and sons' relationships. It was kind of interesting. But no historian, you could say, Uncle Bob, you know that there is no historian that would doubt that Plato existed or that he taught philosophical ideas. Now, if I pushed Bob, I could go like this. You know, Bob, one of his writings that Plato put out there was called Plato's Tetralogies 1 through 6. Anybody read that recently? <laughs> no, none of you? Well, the last dated copy of that work dates to 895 AD. It's about 1,200 years or more after his death. Bob, can I tell you about the Bible? One of the recent counts is that there are over 5,400 Greek manuscripts of the Bible that are floating around in history. And Bob, do you know a little bit of Bible? Do you know, have you ever heard of the book of John, Bob? 
The book of John, I don't know if you know this, but they have found manuscripts of the first 14 chapters of the Gospel of John and much of the last seven chapters, and they date them back to 200 A.D. 200 A.D. And what's the most interesting thing, Uncle Bob, is that there is a portion of John 18, the chapter John 8, in that chapter, they discovered it in Egypt, and it represents the most, the earliest copies of the New Testament, parts of the New Testament that they've ever discovered. And it dates somewhere, somewhere around 117 AD. That is 30 years. Within 30 years, they had John moving over to Egypt and being read in Egypt. 30 years after it was written. See, we accept, accept Plato... And the closest is 1,300 years. Understand, there is evidence after evidence of the history of the Bible itself. The Gospel of John was 30 years after they figure it was written. And you might want to add this, Uncle Bob, you won't hear that on CBS or CNN. But here's where... I want to just give you a quote, and you could have something like this in your billfold or purse. And this is a historian named Bruce. Look at what he reads, just so you, we understand how this book is real. No classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus and Theocide, whatever that is, is in doubt because. The earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals. For most documents of antiquity, only a handful of manuscripts exist, some facing a time gap of 1,800 to 2,000 years or more. Yet scholars are confident of reconstructing the originals with some significant degree of accuracy. In fact, virtually all other knowledge of ancient history depends on documents like these. I don't know if you realize that we depend on history books and documents, old documents that are recorded, even of a George Washington that he existed. Now, Bob is a little maybe silent right now. But let me show you another quote that connects this again with the scriptures about textual criticism. Look at what it reads. This issue is no longer contested by non-Christian scholars. Now the media keeps pushing back. But anybody that understands history and that there's a scholar in it, there's a good reason. Simply put, if we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we have to reject every ancient work of antiquity and declare null and void every piece of historical information from written sources prior to the beginning of the second millennium A.D. Folks, the history of this book says it's real. Now that's a more true apologetic class. And, and, and if you, you can go online, you can research the sites, Josh McDowell and Rabbi Zacharias, you can go through those sites and it'll give you much more information if you want to defend it more from a scientific, more from a, a historical perspective. But here's where I, I got to go today. Because as you look at Bob's world, 
I think there's another way that you can begin to defend the scriptures that maybe moves in a direction that would be more effective for our our people in our community. And, And so today, reasons to trust that the word of God is real. If you're following along in the outline, I said it this way, number one. You could say this to Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob, I have met the Jesus of the Bible and he has changed my life. And I have given my allegiance to him. See, give a reason for the hope. You have hope. Begin to create a foundation as to your experience and your understanding is a witness to even this book. It changed your life. Look at 1 Peter 1.3. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You can actually give a testimony that the word of God was preached to you. I was, people were teaching me this in early elementary. And Uncle Bob, it changed my life. I gave my allegiance to Jesus. Folks, state with confidence that Jesus has become the purpose and the center of your life. Matter of fact, There's a question, you might want to write it down, that that is really a penetrating question that goes with that. And, And the question, Uncle Bob, can I ask you a question? Where do you find meaning and purpose in life? I use this in relationships and counseling all the time. And you can state, I find meaning and purpose in Jesus Uncle Bob, where do you find meaning and purpose? Is it your money? Is it your $50,000 trailer that's up on the hill? Ask the question. But see, folks, asking questions can dig at the heart to influence people toward Christ. And where do you find meaning is one of those questions. Well, let me go to another one, number two here. Another reason is that this book is written by multiple authors whose lives were changed and they give a testimony to that change. Just like you and I can give testimony, you can point to the very book itself and it is a witness of the people that wrote that book and their lives were changed. And you can actually tell that to Uncle Bob. Matter of fact, you take out your phone, you pull up your Bible, and you have it in there, maybe whatever in terms of their, uh, what do they call it when they, you have it it there, okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. What if you turn and gave this to Uncle Bob? Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it to them and you will stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message that I told you. Unless, of course, you believe that something that never was true in the first place. 
Again, tell him this was, this was Paul. He wrote this book and his life was changed. I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, It is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I but God who was working through me by his grace. Here is a biblical writer that is testifying to the truthfulness of the scriptures in terms of his life being changed. You could ask a question to Bob. Bob, do you think they would have written this book if their lives weren't changed? And you go, why? Why would they be writing this if their life wasn't changed? See, history tells us that these men were convinced to the point where they were willing to die for what they believed. And almost all of them, probably other than John, was killed and crucified because they believed God. They believed his word. They believed in Jesus. See, but yet, so many people come and say, well, Jesus was just a man. And yet the authors of this book are testifying, no. See, it leads to another point, though, number three, that Jesus himself testified to the validity even of the Old Testament. When he was on this earth, he was saying, this is from God. Uncle Bob, Christ indicated, you believe he's a good man, but if you go back and begin to dig in the scriptures, you will find that he believes it's the word of God. That's just not me saying it, he says it. Look at John 5, 46. Jesus is speaking here. If you really believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. See, he's peeling back to the writing that Moses talked about. Let me show you another one, John chapter 10. They're getting ready to stone him here. John 10, 33, they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus replied, It is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say, you are gods. And you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. See, Jesus understood there is a permanence in these scriptures. So if if those people who received God's message were gods, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done. Even if you don't believe me, then you will know and understand that Jesus and the father is in me and I am in the father. People keep coming along and go, well, Jesus was just some good man. And that's what it talks about. And you can actually open up the scriptures and say, would you be willing to read this? 
that the scripture speaks about Jesus, that he is God. And he claims that the scriptures are also true and trustworthy. See, I'm not convinced that they're just going to throw the Bible away. Most people, some will ignore it. But let me go down another path as well. Maybe one more here today. It kind of circles back to the first one. And I think we have to remember this in our own lives, is that we have a witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. Bob, Uncle Bob, let me tell you something. There is a voice within me that is speaking to me every day that Jesus is real. Uncle Bob, he's real and the Holy Spirit is affirming that in me. And Bob, you'll never hear that voice because you've rejected him. Bob, can I show you another verse from this book that I believe is true? And you open your phone up again and you turn to 1 John chapter 5. Look at this verse. Verse 7, beginning at verse 7. So we have these three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. All who believe in the son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. See, there's something within us. I believe this is if the spirit of God has really worked, if we are born again, deep down when we are alone, not necessarily around even other Christians, that there's something, the Holy Spirit is going, you're mine. You're my child. I love you. Now, if it's not there, maybe there's reason to believe that maybe you, are, you, you believe the lie. And the truth isn't in you. But see, that testifies. And what's Bob going to say when you go, there's something within me that says Jesus is real? Is he going to deny it? He could try. It doesn't really matter if he does. But see, folks, it slides into the key issue here that we must believe and understand. And a reminder for your notes, I said it this way, we must recognize and believe in the power of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? It's this, is that the words, even this book, has, there's, a, there's an inherent power in these words and because the gospel's contained in here that it can impact people's hearts. See, what we keep trying to do is I got to convince people intellectually to believing about Jesus. It is more than an intellectual belief. Matter of fact, we can't convince anybody into the kingdom unless the Spirit works and begins to take off the blinders off a person's eyes, they're going to continue to reject Jesus. God has to do a work as well. And that is the gospel working. 
He uses the, the words and the story of Jesus and the gospel that has changed your life. He even uses that to begin to take off and to take the scales off people's eyes that they might see Jesus. Somebody came up after the, second, uh, the first service and, and they were talking to an evangelist after the service and he talked about he was one of those guys that when Christians would try to witness to him that they would leave just kind of shamed and their heads kind of like this. And he pointed out and he told the story of this is that those people were walking away, they felt like failures and he, and he made a statement about his own life but he never forgot what they said. It was a cumulative thing. See, the gospel begins to open up the hearts of people. Do we believe that? See, when we talk about giving a reason for the hope that's in us, we got to trust that as we give that reason, as we begin to weave in the gospel story into our, with our story, that God actually works and walks ahead of us. Look at this powerful verse. I don't know if you've ever dug into this passage here. Romans 1.16. Look at how it reads. Paul is writing here, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Is that when the gospel goes forward, it continues to do its work. It's why we have missionaries to present the gospel. Why? Because it changes the hearts of people. It's raising up the bride of Christ. The church is being built. The kingdom is getting ushered in. Why? Because the gospel is working and the gospel walks ahead of us. And we become an apologetic. Our lives become an apologetic to people. And if we're consistent and we do this with gentleness and respect, they live our lives and they can't deny that something has happened in our life. Do you catch what's going on here? See, the gospel is woven into that 1 Peter 3 verse. But here's how I, I need to end because there's, there's maybe people here today, you're listening and you're, you're catching a flavor of the gospel that Jesus came and he died for you. And because of your sinfulness that you are now separated from God. And you understand that we don't mend that relationship by just trying harder or by just going to church or even getting baptized by a baby as a baby. No, there has to be faith where the gospel works and we begin to go, God, I need you. And I'm going to turn and I'm going to give my life to you. And I'm going to live for you and you will be my new allegiance. But maybe there's somebody here today where the gospel is actually beginning to pry at your heart. And you're hearing this and go, I've never done this. I've never surrendered my life to Christ and said, will you be my savior? Will you be my king? And if that's you today, could I implore you to listen to the Holy Spirit? If he's speaking to you right now, would you just bow your heads when, even when I pray and would you, with your heart and your mind, give your life to him 
and then tell somebody about it. See, the gospel is the power. And then we, as we give the good news, as we give the reason for the hope, what's the hope? It's Jesus. It's really Jesus is our hope. And we give that away. So I challenge you as you walk out of this place here today, give your hope away. We live in a world that's falling apart around us and people need hope and your lives are a testimony to the hope. You have something to offer and don't worry if you don't, can't always talk about the number of manuscripts, all of those things. Yeah, you can learn the stuff and I encourage you to learn it. But you have something to offer this world and God wants to use you in that. Let's stand and pray.